But here's the rub. Why don't I live like it? Now, this is where probably my message, and I want to sort of go off off my text here a little bit, um, is inherently, you know, what we look at the sufficiency of Christ and ultimately what it means. We look at his sufficiency in our times of trouble, his sufficiency in our times of need, his sufficiency uh, in dealing with circumstances beyond our control sometimes, his sufficiency in, in salvation. Uh, and, and maybe, his, and, and mine is more or less the sufficiency in, in dealing with my sin, and hopefully you'll see that as well, dealing with your sin. But he is sufficient in, in every particular aspect of our lives. Um, the tendency when asking a question like that is, I, is why I don't feel like God is sufficient at times. But feelings have nothing to do with it, of course. While the question in and of itself is not bad, we're called to self-examine. But the proof of our lives is measured against God's law and His standards for life as revealed in the Bible. Now, uh, Michael did me the great favor of, of expanding my text here a little bit on the back of your text. If you will, please stand. We'll, uh, we'll uh, read the, uh, the text for today and then we'll go from there. So, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know him and have, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak from my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And the greater works than these and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This is God's word for you this day. Amen. Please be seated. Now, if you will, please pray with me. Lord God, you alone are wise and good. We seek you now for wisdom and understanding as we look into your word. Guide me this day that you may be glorified by the preaching of your word. I ask that you lead these people in the right understanding by the Holy Spirit. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, I was talking to Michael and Zach a little bit before, and uh, before we uh, started our service this morning. And, uh, and like most messages, this one is, was an opportunity uh, for some introspection in my life. And in particular, this was an introspection to allow me to examine sometimes why I fail time and time again in observing God's law, being able to stay in God's, uh, in God's way, if you will. So if it sometimes this, during this message or later you consider it, you hear something that caused you to pause, well, where did that come from? Keep in mind... That it is from this uh, squirrel cage of my brain at times. Oftentimes what we think or write about is, is the machinations which we go through in working out the difficulties or things which have touched our lives. We ponder them, weigh them against God's word, roll them over in our minds, pray about them, and then hopefully settled into some measure of equilibrium or satisfaction with these things which cause us to have questions. Solomon in his work of Ecclesiastic would have labeled this, this sort of mental gymnastics as vanity. And it's, I'm reading a wonderful book right now, and I've shared this uh, with Michael and... and uh, Zach, uh, it's called Living Life Backwards by David Gibson. I would highly recommend it. Um, he, in, that, in it, he provides some wonderful insight into the meaning of Ecclesiastes, which he thinks Solomon intended to impart to us. He shares that, in fact, that vanity is not, as it is often thought of, as meaninglessness, but rather a breath. Breath. That is, a breath, a puff of smoke, or a, or a gentle wind. He used the example that it's, those are things you, not necessarily you can grab and put in your pocket, but yet still are very tangible. So vanity is not necessarily something meaningless. It's just something more, a little more difficult to grasp. My dilemma du jour If Christ is sufficient, why don't I live in that sufficiency? Well, 
Like all things for which we have questions, the answer is found in God's Word. Today's passage provides immediate revelation into my dilemma by laying a foundation of understanding to Thomas's question for us all. That Jesus tells us that he encompasses the answers to all of our questions by being the way, the truth, and the life. The significance of our lives, though elusive, may feel sometimes, though elusive, we may feel sometimes, is found in Christ. So let's look at God's sufficiency in each aspect of Christ's declaration of being the way, the truth, and the life. I'll use Paul's letters to Romans, specifically chapters 7 and 8, along with some commentary by J.I. Packer from Knowing God. Concerning the way. Much of the first seven chapters of Romans by Romans lay the foundation of the grace by which we receive justification in the way of salvation when we deserve death. Christ is that way. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's Romans 5, 6. So the way out of death and the way to eternal life was Jesus' dealing with sin. Chapter 7 delves into this more specifically by providing us with the reason we know sin, that is, the law, and how it draws us into actually doing what it forbids. So, and it's, it's an interesting, interesting quandary that the law has proposed. We come to know the law. Yet, by its very nature, we come to know, we come to sin and then have a difficult, difficult time avoiding that very sin. So, I'm not fairly poorly prepared here. This is Romans 7 through 11. Romans 7, 7 through 11, excuse me. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would have not known what what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised me life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous, and good. I added 12 there. Paul's dilemma is the, way, is the war that rages in his body between the impulse to sin and his delight in the law. He expresses it by saying in verses, verse 15, I do not understand my own actions. 
For I do not, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Then in an anguished cry that we all can identify with, Paul says in verses 21 through 24, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of death that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Of course, in Paul's case, that is rhetorical as well. And in the next verse, he, he so thanks God through Jesus Christ, who is our way for being delivered from sin and death. Concerning the truth, we come to know truth through our Lord and Savior that he embodies the, and he and that he embodies the principle. He knows that nothing good dwells in our flesh, desiring to do what is right, but no ability to carry it out. So it is the sin that dwells within us. The fact the fact is the truth of our inability. Not sin causes us great angst. Not to sin causes us great angst. Sin can separate us from doing what is right. It takes a toll on relationships. It causes us to lie, steal, cheat, and covet our way through life. And takes a toll on us. I I watched a, a movie here a couple nights ago, and it's, it's definitely not a Christian movie, but it had some interesting elements to too about of our predicament. And it's I'm not I'm not going to recommend the movie, though it has, like I said, some interesting elements. But it's called Flight. It was with Denzel Washington, and it is a it's crude and lewd and point, points and. And, uh, and purposely so to drive home some of the points. But it's about a story about chemical addiction and its impact on one man's life. And I like to think somehow to a certain level redemption from that and somehow forgiveness he receives from the people about him. Uh, the storyline basically is that he uh, he's basically a drunk and a drug using pilot. But through an interesting set of circumstances, he finds himself piloting uh, an aircraft in, in a very severe storm. And then through a, a, a fault not his own, he, the, the aircraft uh, fails. Basically, a, a catastrophic failure in the mechanical element of the, the airplane. Well, he, being a, a superb pilot, even though he's... He's drunk and high at all the same time, which is another element of the whole thing. He he is a superb pilot and literally inverts this airliner and allows it to, because it was in a harsh dive straight to the earth. And uh, it was going to crash. And matter of fact, they when the the uh, NTSB tried to recreate what he did to save this aircraft. They couldn't do it. 
It was virtually impossible. He was he was able, and I think truly by God's grace, was able to to land this airplane in a fashion. Now it crashed, it still crashed, but it was able to glide it into an open area where it didn't take anybody else out. But he was able to glide that aircraft in uh, and then uh, and say there's a there was a total crew and, and passengers on the airplane was 102. There were six people that ended up dying, but he saves a huge number of the people. So there's a really an inherent sadness to this movie, and though we see ultimately he comes to has come to grips with it, we see a changed life. The consequence, consequences of his sin and addiction bring a heavy toll into his life. His lies and deceptions catch up to him. And he is forced to acknowledge that there is no more lies left in him to express. He was all out of lies. He just and he'd, he'd lied his whole life. And he was now forced to uh, say, oh, I have no more lies within me. At the end of the film, he's asked by his once estranged son. He was at really odds with his son and his ex-wife. Uh, he, but during the course of of his uh, his confession and then going to prison for a few years, uh, he's he's able to kind of make some things right, and he and he uh, ends up uh, having a now a good relationship with his son, and and the son is doing a, a research paper with the theme of the greatest person I never knew. That was so his son comes to to seek him for that because he he and his son had been so at different at odds that they the son really never knew him. So the first question he asks of his father is, who are you? Denzel Washington can only respond. That is a good question. That is where sin can leave us. But God gives us identity. Praise be to God that we no longer are held accountable for our lack of truth and we inherit the truth of Christ. If Paul stopped at chapter 7, we would be a miserable lot. But we come to chapter 8, thankfully. Uh, J.I. Packer in his, in, his, in his commentary on these verses in Knowing God says that uh, chapter 8 doesn't get us out of the first chapters, chapters 1 through 7. As a matter of fact, we, we really inherently need chapter 8, uh, but it's important that we understand this, we, the importance of chapters 1 through 7 in our appreciation for what he shares further in chapter 8. Paul, as a good pastor, does not want to leave the diagnosis of of failure by Roman Christians to perfectly observe the law as a final word, but rather leaving them in a miserable state goes on about assuring them in chapter eight by holding up the gospel to them. In chapter eight, verses three through four, he now provides them with the truths of our relationship with the spirit. And in Romans five, Romans eight, five through 10, 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind is for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. We move on to the consideration of of Christ being life to us. J.I. Packer considers Roman 8 to fall into two distinct parts of an equal length. In verses 1 through 30, verses 1 through 30 speak of the adequacy of the grace of God. And from quoting from knowing God to deal with a whole series of predicaments the guilt and power of sin, that's verses 1 through 9. The fact of death, that's verses 6 through 13. The terror of confronting God's holiness, verse 15. Weakness and despair in face of suffering, that's verses 17 through 25. Paralysis in prayer, verses 26 through 27. And the feeling that life is meaningless and hopeless in verses 28 through 30. The answer to all of those is Jesus Christ. Paul infuses our lives with Christ's life by making four points. There's no condemnation. He highlights the work of the Holy Spirit. Sonship, that is our adoption into God's eternal family in which Christ is the firstborn, and security. Quoting J.I. Packer, this composite endowment, a status, that is, there's no condemnation, plus a dynamic, the work of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit into our lives, Sonship, that is the adoption, that is, that is our identity, we're as sons and daughters of the Most High. And then plus a safe conduct is more than enough support a Christian needs for whatever trouble he might find himself in. Verses 31 through 39 provide some of the most precious promises found in the Bible. Promises backed up by the full credit of the maker of the universe, who has never lied, failed to keep a promise, and provides us with an eternal home. 
The giver now, excuse me, the giver now lays out our full inheritance and provides us with the assurance we long for. Reading from Romans 38, or 838, excuse me. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate, separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I consider that life. Hopefully in the course of this whole thing, I doesn't feel like I've strayed off message too much. I've, I've like I said, I've tried to lay out a, a, a principles for us by which we can see Christ as the answer for our for our failures in obedience and simply not being able to deal properly with our sin. And that's something I, I really haven't even gone into. But it definitely deals with and requires the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. So our, our prayer life is so incredibly important. Invoking the Spirit, Spirit of Christ to um, work through the failures in our lives. I want us to see and grasp the sufficiency of Christ. Despite our failures and the turmoil that boils around us. We have the testimony of Scripture and the intercession of the Holy Spirit to direct our lives. That is yet most important. We never have to feel like we are being tossed by circumstances and question, who am I? In Psalm 73 of Asaph, he provides a wonderful expression of love and trust in the Lord God. It is our heritage in Christ and I'm reading from, from Psalm 73, verse 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen.